chapter 13. And for your soul's sake and for your joy, I beg you to hear the gospel of your salvation in this passage this morning. And for and unto the glory of God. Beginning with verse 20. He closes our letter. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and utterly, stunningly powerful word to us in the book of Hebrews. Father, thank you for such a wonderful Savior, your eternal Son, whom you didn't spare but sent to deliver us, as Chris just read, to deliver us from holy wrath and unto eternal joy. May you in this cross be glorified in our midst this morning. Amen. And amen. So how do we end 80 sermons throughout the book of Hebrews? The answer is simple this morning. With a benediction. With a pronouncing of blessing upon our lives. In other words, the writer, what he has done now, this ending and with this benediction is he's taken everything that he has taught us and he says it in these two verses. May God do it. What? Everything we saw for 80 sermons. A portrait that he has painted of Jesus why does he paint that portrait for us? The reason is that we would be captivated by it. That's why. The reason he does it is that we could stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and be bored at it in comparison to the painting he has painted for us of Jesus, our Savior.
And that's why the writer then pens the words the way he does in verses 20 and 21. He is addressing Christians who are really going through it. They have been being persecuted with constant intimidations from fellow non-believing Jews. And God knows there is looming right on the horizon really, really bad persecution coming toward Jews, particularly in Christians secondarily from Nero the emperor. And that's why throughout this letter we have seen the word Endure. Endure. And so may God grant us eyes to see the book of Hebrews clearly and recognize how desperate any of us are at any time daily for Him, for communion with Him, for knowing Him. And so the writer concludes this great benediction that encompasses it all. And his point in the whole thing throughout the letter, and now again in this benediction, is he says, you are to endure. But his point is so wonderful. Endurance, it must be obtained but it's not, Christian, it's not going to be obtained because you are strong. It's going to be obtained because He will provide it. So he summarizes the book of Hebrews. Let's read it again with these two verses. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. May He equip you with everything good that you may do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So let's look at it. First, God has provided an eternal peace treaty with himself toward fallen rebels. That's verse 20, first clause. Now may the God of peace Every human being has an uneasy knowing that not all is well with them in their existence. Why do I exist? And what's it all 
about. There is no peace deep down. And so we desperately seek it in our natures through drugs, alcohol to numb those thoughts and those feelings. We seek it in relationships and money and busyness, 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 busyness on our way to the grave. But true peace can only come through being reconciled to God. Because all of us, by nature, are not children of God's peace. We are by nature born into this world as children of God's wrath, indignation toward us, as Ephesians 2.3 makes clear. Our sins make us enemies of God. And apart from, from God, Changing our hearts, we ourselves are at war with God. Even if we are at the pinnacle hierarchy of a religion, we, without a heart change, are enemies toward God. Paul writes it this way in Romans 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Tell Paul viewed himself now that he came alive to Christ when he was very religious. For it, the mind does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And I know that most people walking around in the world today who are presently enemies of God, they don't recognize it consciously. And that's because Satan has blinded their minds. See, one of the first Signs that God is at work saving a, a person is that in their heart they begin to recognize their own sin and their own guiltiness before the Creator. And so the person senses the reality also that there's no way I could atone for that. And so... What happens to us? You begin to yearn for true peace with God. And if you're in Christ, what happened one way or another, whether with a Gideon's Bible, a preacher on TV, a friend, or just picking up the Bible at home, what happened is that God providentially brought to you the message of Jesus. The good news. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing, even when they hear it, like people raised up in local churches, even to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Then he goes on. For God, who said in the beginning, creating the heavens and the earth, let the light shine out of darkness. Christians, he has shown. He did it. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face in th- of Jesus Christ, in, in the hearing of the good news of Jesus. It was me at age 19 reading the Bible. And out of the blue, I'm reading the last week of Jesus' mortal life, that Passion Week, and how it ended on Sunday. It's not, not like I never heard it before, but reading it, it hit me. This, if true, is the greatest possible news imaginable. The eternal holy God toward us broken, lost, scared sinners. He can be the God of peace. And as Paul wrote in Romans 5.1, very concisely, therefore, after he laid out the work of Christ, the gospel, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by God through our faith, therefore what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he kicks off the benediction. To Christians, now may the God of peace. And then secondly, he tells us God has provided for us the perfect shepherd that we sheep need. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus The great shepherd of the sheep. What a way to wrap up this letter. You helpless, frail, often very dumb, vulnerable, weak sheep. You have a great shepherd. 
God sent His own eternal Son to become a human being in order to be our great shepherd. Hear the words of the shepherd from John 10. Hear them. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able, capable to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I, this man standing before you, and the Father are one. Jesus is our great shepherd. Third, God has provided for us by having our shepherd killed. Verse 20 mentions death and blood. Hear it again. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, a major theme throughout the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, animal, sacrificial system. And we know that the wages of sin, like we talked about, <laughs> the debt's been paid. We had a debt. The wages of sin is death. And that God is holy. And that He is just. So He cannot just sweep sin under the rug. That would be to deny Himself justice, holiness. So it must, justice must be satisfied. And that's why the writer wrote in chapter 9, verse 22 to us, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were only a picture, a foreshadowing of the one true eternal sacrifice of the man, Christ Jesus. That's why he wrote in chapter 10, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats 
take away sins. What those sacrifices in the Old Covenant could not do, Jesus did. As God, eternal, second person of the Holy Trinity, He became one of us. Human. Remember what He told us back in chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, His humanity, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, became human. Why? In order that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. That's why, believer, the consummation of your salvation is yet to come. And it is the resurrection of your dead body united again forever with your soul in immortality. This eternal person is fully, completely human, obeyed God's law perfectly. Where our first representative that messed all of us up, why we're born children of wrath, where he, Adam, failed, the second Adam, our representative, succeeded in perfect righteousness, which is then given to all his sheep, imputed to each and every one, perfect righteousness, not your own, but his. And then he was offered up, and as the Hebrew says, as high priest offered himself up as the atoning, propitiating sacrifice in order to satisfy God's justice toward sinners. The God of peace, he tells us here at the close, has provided the way for us, for any sinner, to have God be at peace with you forever. He has provided for us a God of peace by sending the great shepherd of the sheep, by putting him to death on the cross. Oh, what a gospel. Good news. What a story. Fourth. Story continued. He did not remain dead. But God provided for us by raising our great shepherd from the dead. Thus, confirming the eternal covenant. Let's read verse 20 again. And I want you to notice it is one long, verse 20, complex subject clause. 
Now, we haven't even gotten to the main part of the sentence, the verb. That doesn't come until the beginning of verse 21. This is one complex clause. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Okay, because it's complex, don't lose the grammar, what he is saying. That phrase, by the blood of the eternal covenant, is grammatically connected with God's bringing up Jesus from the dead. God, in other words, it's the flow is this grammatically. God raised Jesus from the dead by or through the blood of the eternal covenant. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus confirmed God's acceptance of Jesus' death as the ratification of the new covenant. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's referring to the prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. You remember in this letter, after the writer clarified the superiority of Jesus over angels and over Moses and over the law and over the Old Testament priesthood, he then pointed his guns at the whole old covenant. And the way he did it was to quote Jeremiah 31. Turn there, chapter 8, Hebrews. And he quotes it extensively. Starting with verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. Here's, here's His promise. Covenant. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord. Nope. Because everyone in that covenant shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. There's the promise. There's the promise of the new covenant. Where's the blood in that, Jeremiah? Well, didn't say it, but we know where it is. 
The Hebrew writer is clear. It's through, our text says, the blood of the eternal covenant. Clearly in his mind, he means this new covenant, which was offered up by Jesus. And it was affirmed by the God of peace, by raising Jesus from the dead. Almighty God, the creator, the judge, is declaring that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus from Nazareth, he enters into covenant with everybody who is being saved. And he gives these promises. Is this you? God writes his law on our hearts. In minds. He declares that we are his people. God declares this new covenant means all of them will know me. Not just know things about me. They will all personally know me without the Levitical priesthood. God assures then His mercy, His forgiveness of all our sins eternally. Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus from that little town called Nazareth, Without his resurrection into immortal human life, Christianity is a lie. The whole point of verse 20 here is that the new, the, the eternal covenant provides everything for salvation, which means he did not just convert us to Christ and then leave us to fend for ourselves. No. Get the flow. Because the fifth thing he says here is this. He goes on now. Get, here's the verb. He will equip us. He'll equip us in and with everything good. What's that for? In order that we will do His will. Now think if, if Wes and Jenny brought home their new infant baby girl into the home and said, well, there's the bathroom there's the bed. Over here is the stove. It's all yours. Take advantage of it. Well, thank God none of us do that. And God doesn't do that with us from the moment we're born again unto eternity. Paul explains it. This way. Okay, don't miss the flow. So remember the large subject clause. Paul, the writer to the Hebrews. The subject clause here. 
It's just simply this. Now may the God of peace equip. May He equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Like Paul did say, He who did not spare His own Son, that's the hardest thing. But He gave Him up for us all. Okay, He's got that done. How in the world will He not freely graciously give to us all things. As sinners who were totally dead to God with zero desire to trust Him, to honor Him, to be wowed by the glory of Him, God came and miraculously equips us by new birth, and dwelling of the Spirit, and thus a process throughout your life of sanctification. That equip is the same word they use to mend nets, the fishing nets. It's, it's mend it. It's, he's mending, that ongoing mending, that ongoing equipping is producing, notice what it says, it's producing our Doing His will. Here's the point of the new covenant in Jeremiah and in the book of Hebrews. What the death of Jesus purchased, it does not warrant any Christian to say, yes, God did his part. He offers to me all the resources, but we must respond in faith in order to keep our side of the new covenant and thus be pleasing to Him. And therefore, really, Christianity, the, the new covenant, is it's only as sure as I am strong. That would blatantly miss the point. And it would be a misreading of this text. And this is confirmed by the sixth thing that God provides. He's working in us. What is He working in us? That which is pleasing to Him. In his sight. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will as he is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Now, does that mean that Christians? are not to be actively obeying the commands throughout the book of Hebrews to live by faith? Or are we to be completely passive? There it is. No, doesn't mean that at all. 
The passage is saying the same thing that the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Here's the command, Christians. Work! Okay, no, no, no. Don't work for. You're not trying to get in. Work out your salvation that you do have. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're not done. For. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you. Both will and to do or do and to will according to his good pleasure God saves us by his sovereign grace not by anything that we do now every sinner in order to be saved in this world before death, must respond to the message of Jesus. The good news about Jesus Christ that the book of Hebrews lays out. They must respond with a heart of faith in order to be saved. Absolutely. But that saving faith and that repentance they're a gift that was purchased by the blood of the eternal covenant. They are not something that originates with any of us sinful creatures. God is the one who, who, who brought us through new birth. New birth caused saving faith, not the other way around. And it's not all. He goes on, as Ephesians chapter 1 says, and has blessed and is blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, He's working in us, motivating and empowering us, the text says, to do His will. And that will at its core, according to the book of Hebrews, is to go on hearing, hearing the word and obeying his word from a heart of faith. The writer wants to be crystal clear as he closes this with this benediction that our covenant personal relationship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is rock solid, eternal. He not only equips us with resources for doing His will, but He works in us that which is pleasing 
in his sight. What is that? It, it cannot ever be stated, oh, this is what it is, if you do not have in that faith. Saving or persevering, if you take the book of Hebrews, ongoing, persevering faith in him. That's what he's doing. We know that because he made it clear in chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So how can God be working something in us that's not faith? That pleases him? It doesn't work. God is causing every new covenant person to freely and joyfully use the means of grace. His word, the scripture, praying, communing, assembling together over the word of God in psalms and songs and spiritual songs and accountability in, in groups with other believers in the Christian community. It is God who is doing it. But oh, oh, okay, well, let's, when you partake and persevere, you do it. Human beings have a will. You will it. But it is ultimately God's working in you to do and to will. It is his new covenant promise. Just one more. Listen to briefly Ezekiel. Way back, over 500 years before Jesus came, also by God the Holy Spirit prophesying of the new covenant. He says it this way in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'm going to remove your, your rock-hard, sinful heart and make it pliable like flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Here it is. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. In other words, let's wrap this thing up. 80 sermons now with this one. And all of those dead, serious exhortations throughout the book of Hebrews, all of them, like, take care, be careful that none of you have a 
evil, unbelieving heart growing and growing and growing. Endure. Get rid of your lack of ability to hear the Scripture. Because you're bored, dull of hearing. Get rid of it. Pay very close attention. Don't neglect. Consider Jesus. Don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion under Moses. Fear. Lest you fail to enter His rest. Draw near. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. as is the habit of some. Run the race with endurance. Okay, you got it? Refreshing? Refreshing your mind? All of those exhortations. Here's the point. God will work. In those who are His. In those, according to the text, who are purchased by the blood of the new covenant. And now, finally, makes it clear, He does all of this through Jesus Christ. Through the picture he has painted throughout this whole book of Hebrews. Through the creator becoming a human being and the high priest and the lamb of God and the resurrected king who intercedes for us. The glorious Lord. That's how he does it. And thus, these last words. To whom? Okay, pause. To whom? To the God of peace or to Jesus Christ? Grammatically both work in the original. Well, my answer to that is yes. Read it. May the God of peace work all of this in you through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Stunning. Like the whole book of Hebrews has been stunning. This is a man who came out of a mortal, sinful woman's womb. This is a true human being. Now forever. To whom all glory and honor, praise is to be given to. Because He is also God, the Son, forever. Remember, John, as I close here on the island of Patmos, He gives us these stunning words from the vision that He's given. Revelation 5, just hear it, hear the words. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, I heard them saying, quote, 
to him who sits on the throne and to Jesus and to the Lamb be what? Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Salvation in Jesus Christ is to our unimaginable joy and happiness. And yet it is not foundationally about us. It's to our great joy precisely because this book of Hebrews is about God and His glory through Jesus Christ. The extension and the, the expansion of His glory through the new covenant blood of Jesus Christ is the greatest possible news imaginable. And that's why all of us who find ourselves in that new covenant with God, we sing the words to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might Forever and ever and ever. Let's stand.